afternoon from the KLX Studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Frank Fling, and this is the Berkeley Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, contact lens and hugging cells. In addition, we'll be joined by Mr. Andrew Grant, who will discuss gorilla behavior. So stay tuned for all this. Plus the Rocketron 5000. And the real famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Berkeley Grok Science Show. I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? I'm excited as science as always. Um, In fact, life should just be called science. Really? I thought eating ice cream was just as good. <laughs> you know, that's true, actually. <laughs> In I fact, sh- I almost thought I could prove the existence of God because ice cream existed. Uh, that was his big mistake, was creating ice cream, because it's a dead giveaway, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Is. In fact, I'm quitting my job as a scientist to become an ice cream man now. <laughs> Do you have a jingle to go with that? <laughs> <laughs> Here comes the black hole of science truck. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so something completely different. Have you thought what the next, next, next generation of iPod might look like? There's some scientists who envisioned that one day you could actually put an entire video projection screen into the contact lens of your eyes. Oh, really? Okay. Yes. Suddenly you have a vision of a video game or something that scans what you're seeing, so the computer reminds you who you're actually talking to. <laughs> Why stop at the contact lens? Just pipe it directly into my brain. <laughs> And Steve Jobs will make that happen, I'm sure. (laughs) Some scientists have actually created a prototype contact lens with electronic circuits. Essentially, this lens has electronic material, like several nanometers thick on the surface. And although it doesn't have a functioning uh, diode, it actually is an electronic circuit. And so far, we've tested in rabbits, which have been able to sustain safely for at least 20 minutes. Oh, really? So that's, uh, that's just long enough to uh, watch a bad episode of Deal or No Deal. (laughs) And really, they're all bad episodes. So. <laughs> Anyways, I'm not sure if I would really want to have one of these in my eyes, but I guess biotic technology is making progress. Well, one day we'll, we'll all be hooked up to the Matrix. Indeed. Interesting stuff. It's work led by Harvey Ho, who's now working at the Sandia National Labs in Livermore, California. All right, well, uh, what might happen to those contact lenses is they might get engulfed by your eye. If they get engulfed by your eye? Like a very large person hugging a very small person. (laughs) (laughs) Encounter some very large people in my lifetime. (laughs) Have they hugged you? Everyone needs a hug. I think it blacked out. They slipped a roofie, I think. (laughs) So scientists have discovered a novel form of cell death in which one form of cell can engulf another cell and thereby in the process killing it. And this is not like your typical phagocytosis, white blood cell. Uh, are these cells within the human body? Yeah, actually. So this has actually been seen for more than 25 years. Researchers who look at cultures of human cancer cells have occasionally spotted a cell tucked inside another cell. But they haven't really thought much of it. But recently, a biologist, Michael Overholzer of Harvard Medical School, has looked at this. And they seem to think that it's actually a novel mechanism for a cell death. For the little guys to die? For the little guys to die. So. And are, are these essentially the same type of cells or different yeah, types Yeah, so cells? what they found is they're looking at tissue breast cells, and they found that some of the cells actually would get engulfed by another one, and over 70% of them, once engulfed, would die. I thought survival of this is only between species. <laughs> it occurs at all levels. It's like a fractal geometry of biology. <laughs> 
They suggest it also might be a way for some types of cells to escape cell death because it turns out up to 18% can get released unharmed. So maybe if it's a cancer cell, for example, it'll hide inside one cell and then pop out again. One skeptical point of view is from Craig Thompson of the University of Pennsylvania. He suggests that the fact that some cells survive mitosis doesn't mean much. It could only suggest that this is only a phenomenon that you're seeing in the lab rather than inside the body because mm. of some strange conditions that you have with culturing cells. Right. Anyway, fittingly enough, this is in the journal Cell. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Berkeley Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Mr. Andrew Grant will join us to discuss gorilla behavior. So stay tuned. Science Show. Well, gorillas hold a fascination for many due to their unique behavior and what lessons they may hold for our own human behavior. But gorillas are constantly endangered by human encroachments on their habitats, threatening not only their own existence, but perhaps ours as well. Well, what can we learn from our gorilla cousins? Join us today to discuss this issue is Mr. Andrew Y. Grant. Mr. Grant is the current CEO of Grant Leisure and was the deputy director of the San Diego Zoo and Wild Animal Park, as well as the managing director of the London Zoo. His new book, Nearly Human, The Gorilla's Guide to Good Living, explores the world of gorillas for a general audience. So Mr. Grant, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you. Well, it's really a pleasure to have you on the program, and I think you've certainly written a very fascinating book, uh, Nearly Human. I'm curious if you can tell us, what is it that girls can actually teach us as humans? Well, in the book, there's about 125 lessons, and broke it down into five chapters. The first one is eating out, which goes through the gorilla diet. And the thing about the gorilla diet, or the thing about the book, really, is that gorillas are part of their ecologies, and we, we fight ours. And the whole idea of the book is in order to go forward means we've got to go backwards. And we're just looking at the way that gorillas eat, how they parent, how they take care of the elderly, how they're able to lead successfully, how they raise their children. And it creates just a extraordinary reason why we should just look backwards at them. I mean, just as an example, the average wild gorilla follows dietary guidelines of the U.S. National Research Council of Health more closely than 97% of Americans in terms of how they eat. And in terms of how they parent, which is the next chapter, their parenting is phenomenal. I mean, they're calm. Their mothers constantly cradle the babies. They have secure attachment. They never, ever touch their children. They have what's called the gentle rebuff, which is the key to gorilla parenting, They, which means they totally ignore them. They learn from their peers. They have to learn on their own. And then the silverback comes over and begins to take the male and rears him to join the force. So they have these things called secure neurons, which allow them to feel extremely strong. It helps stress-related activities, and it allows them to be much more adaptive to change. So they are the best parents. They are great leaders. They are great communicators. And they're just a, a fascinating example about how to live in harmony with their environment. 
So many people, when they're looking at uh, earlier primates, they draw comparisons more towards the chimpanzees and the uh, bonobos, who have very divergent behaviors, chimpanzees being more warlike, whereas the bonobos being more peace-loving. Do the gorillas fall somewhere in that happy medium, or are they more towards one end or the other? Well, I think that uh, chimps are really 99% DNA, and gorillas are 98% DNA. But the reason we chose, I chose gorillas is one, I think they're a fascinating primate. But more importantly than that, they live in absolute perfect harmony with their environment, and they're totally non-aggressive. I mean, the only aggressive behavior that really takes place with gorillas is when they're fending off another male or a threat from the outside, or if there's some kind of inter- battle between an alpha male and a young up-and-coming silverback but most of their behavior in terms of their nine-step chest beat their threat biting is all about bluffing they're very calm and civilized and easygoing and i spent a week in the jungle in uganda just recently and you know for at least 100 hours which i have on film if somebody wants to see you can see it on youtube which is gorillas and windy and you can see how relaxed and calm and together they are as a unit. They're much less aggressive than chimpanzees, and including bonos. Do you think it's largely due to their environment? Do they have uh, many natural predators out in that environment? They have no natural predators except for man, and perhaps every once in a while, a jaguar. You know, they're such large creatures that it's not easy to wrestle them down. Most of the death comes from a loss of habitat, falling out of trees, Ebola and the same kind of disease that man spreads from smallpox, etc., are susceptible to gorillas. So they really don't have any natural predator other than you know man and loss of habitat. Hmm. Well, that is a good point. You know, gorillas are indeed endangered by human encroachment onto their habitats. What is being done to prevent that, or is anything being done to prevent that? Well, there are plenty of lowland gorillas left in Gabon and Cameroon and in Nigeria, but their habitat is falling away. I mean, there's probably between 10 and 40,000 lowland gorillas left. But in terms of the mountain gorilla, there's only 730 mountain gorillas left, and they're all around the Veluga Mountains, cornered by the Democratic Republic of Congo, Rwanda, and Uganda. And the big problem is that the Congolese rebels in the Marunga National Forest in Zaire, the Congo, the Republic of, are totally out of control. And just recently they ran out the National Park wardens and took over an area where there's 150 mountain gorillas left. And I don't know if you saw Newsweek, but there's been a tremendous amount of shooting of gorillas, not necessarily for poaching or for bushmeat, but just to blame one Congolese rebel faction against another. So I think we can kind of, in terms of an area for mountain gorillas, I think we can count out the whole Democratic Republic of the Congo, because I don't think they'll last long there at all. But in terms of Bwindi, which is in Uganda, and in terms of Rwanda, I think we have a very good chance of building a mountain gorilla habitat and species back up again. They're very on top of it. It's very important to their economy in terms of ecotourism. And they're doing an excellent job working across scientific organizations from the London Zoological Society to San Diego to New York in terms of getting outside advice and working together under ISIS to help the mountain gorillas survive. Problem is, is that there are no mountain gorillas in captivity. Mm -hmm. They just cannot live in captivity mm -hmm. because of their dense 
jungle environment. I mean, the rainforest in Uganda and the Democratic Republic of Congo and Rwanda is so dense, and the mountain gorilla cannot handle the stress. The lowland gorilla is what we all see in captivity. You know, there's four or five different types of lowland gorilla that are available to us. The eastern lowland is the most endangered, and that lives way into the rainforest of the Democratic Republic of, of the Congo and, and no place else. But the western lowland gorilla is the one that we see mostly in the zoos. So we've really got to work on the natural habitat of the mountain gorilla if we want to be able to see these creatures. Hmm. And why do you feel it's so important to help protect the species in terms of what they can teach us in terms of our own behavior? Well, take parenting as an example. We as human beings, when a baby is born, the first thing we do is we put it in a crib in another room with an intercom. We send them to a daycare center. They eat at a separate table. And there isn't that close contact or haptics, which is touch, that gorillas are really good at. I mean, the gorilla when the baby is born, attaches to the mother for the first two months. And the mother is unable to teach them all the survival techniques, you know, from the beginning of nursing all the way through the process of eight months, just going through the survival techniques. And then almost like a yardstick, the mother allows the baby to go out and learn from their peers in terms of how to mock copulate, how to chest beat, how to play, how to socialize, how to use iconic gestures, how to eat. They learn this all from their peers. But every night they go back and they actually sleep in a nest with their mother until equivalent age seven or eight. And then in some cases build a nest next to them. And after the gorilla is between 18 months and three years, uh, the silverback or the, lead, the dominant female will come in and nurture and continue this training of the gorilla until either they leave the group or become part of the group itself. And what happens is, is this strong family bond helps build, as I said earlier, their neurons. They're easy to change, easygoing, and they turn out to mix absolutely properly in their environment. Our dysfunctional way of raising children is not a great example in terms of balance and harmony. They have that balance and harmony. And parenting, I think, is just one important aspect of what we can learn from the gorillas. In terms of leadership, the other uh, important aspect of leadership is that the silverback, he maintains the harmony of the group, protects the females, keeps males from exerting dominance and stealing females. He leads the troop into foraging, maintains a important dominance and group hierarchy. They're in a way benevolent dictators, but they create stability and provide prevention from outsiders and also leadership. They're, again, a great example of how a, a father or leader of the household should act and maintain a successful group. The other thing is that their communication is essentially survival to the group, and they never use deception in terms of any of their behavioral techniques. They have gestures, uh, iconic gestures, which hand signals and facial hugs and expressions and eye movements, which I think really hold a cue about some of our earliest forms of communication, especially among humans. So in terms of how they communicate, how they relate, how they parent, how they eat, how they take care of the elderly, how they raise their children. It's just a very good idea to learn because there's probably 125 different lessons that we can learn from gorillas. That's the reason I wrote the book. 
Well, certainly interesting lessons indeed. I mean, a lot of people might say, well, these are natural tendencies that humans might have, but which modern civilization made more difficult to follow. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, my good example is, let's talk about communications. Mm -hmm. The first thing that a young child does, he learns how to smile. And why does he learn how to smile? Because he knows that smile is a positive reinforcement. He's going to get a reward. Whether he likes what he's doing or not, or whether he learns that smiling is really a good way of getting what he wants. And as we grow up, deceptive behavior becomes a real important part of our survival. In the case of gorillas, there isn't any deceptive behavior. You know, their behavior is there to communicate. Their behavior is there to be in harmony with their group. Their behavior is there for survival. And it's important that when we raise children that we understand the essence of communication and what we're trying, what kind of platform that we're allowing our children to learn from. And that's, I think, a very important lesson that we should rethink. Well, it is really interesting, but might argue that gorillas have a very special sort of culture. Their groups are much smaller than human societies, and in human societies, one might argue that some types of deception might actually be necessary for beneficial-type behaviors. Yeah, I'm sure in business, and I'm sure in other, in other aspects. But, you know, being honest and being truthful in the world, I think in the long run, is going to make people a stronger community and a stronger sense of life. These are just examples of things that gorillas avoid in terms of their life and their environment. But, you know, I mean, you, you can look at it everywhere. This book is a beacon to learn from our DNA relatives, and it really looks back in order for us to go forward and sets out a series of really interesting aspects of gorilla behavior that we should just look at ourselves about again. Hmm. You know, you've had a, sort of an interesting career at a number of zoos. I'm wondering, how did you become interested in gorillas in particular among all the animals that I'm sure you dealt with daily? Well, I worked for Anheuser-Busch for quite a while, and uh, then I ended up being the chief executive of the Wild Animal Park in San Diego, the Zoological Society of San Diego. And every morning as I walked through, there was a big dominant silverback called Trib, who used to wait for me. He'd hear me walk, and he'd wait till I get to the edge of the gorilla grotto, and he'd have a stare. And then just as I walked past, he'd run to the end and start beating his chest, saying, Welcome here, Mr. Grant, but you're on my territory. And he just fascinated me. So I spent a great deal of time just with the keepers and looking at the primates and getting involved in the breeding and the veterinarian care, all the way from electroejaculation and frozen zoos into doing root canals and, and watching how Trib managed his family unit. And some of the keeper stories absolutely fascinating in terms of how people who had hand-reared one of our young males, Jimmy, was going through a divorce, and she started to cry, and she heard Jimmy cry. And Jimmy really had a tremendous amount of empathy for Susan, who was the keeper. And then she got a haircut, and Jimmy reached through the cage and recognized that she had cut her bangs and put his finger across her head. And I mean, I think the thing that is fascinating is and when you sit down and observe gorillas both in captivity and in the wild, you just have this eerie feeling that they understand you and you understand them. It, it caught me, and so for the rest of the time, not only did I look and learn about gorillas, but I decided that it was time that somebody actually wrote a book that people could understand. I mean, most of the books on gorillas that have been written today, and I think George Schaller, who is probably the greatest gorilla expert and conservationist in the world, in fact, Diane Fossey lived in his little hut in Rwanda. You know, he said, great job. You know, this is something people can enjoy. It's factual and it's accurate. And it's not scientific. 
the frustration I had in managing huge research departments is that they just would write these dense volumes about guerrilla behavior and other behavior. And although you wanted to learn about it, it was very difficult to understand. So it just dawned on me that this is the time where it's so important not only to save the mountain gorilla and conservation that we need a book that people are able to read and to action and to learn about what conservation is all about. Not just describe it, but become part of it. So we put in websites and you know ways to help conservation and I'm now working with supermarket chains to set up foraging pamphlets to allow people to learn how to forage for food and not just shove it in the basket but understand the protein and the content and I'm in the midst of designing gorilla camp where kids can actually learn how to act and be gorillas and learn how to forage and learn how to interact with others and learn iconic gestures and I think that what I'm trying to do is to push hard in conservation for action-oriented involvement rather than just standing back and looking at the disaster ahead of us how can we go forward and participate in it and I hope this book leads the charge we're also working on a national curriculum book for both grammar school and high school and junior high school and a children's book so that we can begin to plant the seed on guerrilla behavior and other aspects of conservation. Uh, well, I'm curious if uh, you could give take-home message regarding gorillas, what we could learn from them, and where they can go and get more information. Yeah, the book, which you can get at any bookstore or on Amazon, in the section, uh, in fact, it has an index. It has all of the various different chapters laid out. But more importantly, what we've been able to do is put together the resources on general conservation, which has all of the websites on African Conservatory to the African Wildlife Foundation to conservation links on forests, bushmeat, internal gorilla conservation. We have also have Jane Goodall's sites, the Rainforest Action Network, what San Diego's doing, and these are all important, both in learning, contributing, and participating, which a lot of people can do. We've also outlined what's really important about civil unrest, about grassroots fundraising, about individual donations, about spreading the word, and about being a responsible eco-tourist. So the book is just filled with things that we can do, not only to save the gorilla, but for conservation as a whole. I think the best and most important thing is is that gorillas are really close relatives. They share 98% DNA. And it's good for you to explore just how close we really are and what we can learn from them. And this, I hope, will teach everybody how important they are to be saved and perhaps learn a little bit more about ourselves and making our lives a little less stressful and more healthy. Eating as an example, I mean every single type of vegetable and root that the gorilla eats is a cancer preventative in terms of pancreas, lungs, larynx. It's just a really good lesson for us to try and be better human beings really. Mm -hmm. Well, it does certainly sound like there are a lot of lessons to be learned from uh, the gorillas, and it does look like we're slightly out of time, but I do want to mention again, of course, your new book is Nearly Human, The Gorilla's Guide to Good Living. Mr. Grant, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. You bet. Andrew's listening to Mr. Andrew Grant discussing gorilla behavior. This is the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. Hey, hey, we're the monkeys. The people say we monkey around. 
Play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It is, of course, our supercomputer, which was formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic gorilla or human. So, for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if they're more gorilla like or maybe human like, and a little reason why. Uh, Mr. Grant, are you ready to play the game? Yes, I am. Okay, here we go. Person number one, gorilla or human, Microsoft Chairman Bill Gates. Hmm, I think he's more human. Aggressive, monetary, non... <laughs> I mean, he's, he, he seems to be a nice guy, but I don't think that his whole posture is gorilla-like. It's much more human-like. Mm-hmm. Number two is the pop star Michael Jackson. Wow, that's a pretty tough one. I think Michael Jackson is probably a immature mountain gorilla, basically. <laughs> I don't think he's ever, ever matured, and I think that the problem is he's probably been lost an environment that was easy for him to survive in. So I would have to call him basically a lost young gorilla. (laughs) Needs more nurturing, I guess. (laughs) He needs a lot more nurturing. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, Well, number three is the famed primatologist Louis Leakey. Um, Louis Leakey was an absolutely terrific guy. I mean, I, I think definitely think that Louis Leakey is much more like a male silverback, a great leader, a share, able to, he understands the importance of his environment. I'm sure he understands the necessity of family, uh, social interaction, and leadership. And Lewis is a great example of, of a silverback. It's probably much to learn from his behavior then, huh? I think so. All right, well, number four is O.J. Simpson. Well, O.J. Simpson is probably done everything wrong uh, <laughs> that one could do. He's uh, been deceptive. He's been aggressive. I don't know how people feel about his guilt, but you know he's not a great example of living in harmony with his environment. I think he's a good example of bashing his way through the environment like he played football. Hmm. He's definitely got to be basically a, uh, a human, though. Maybe the Silverbacks should kick him out of the uh, group. They definitely would, to be honest with you. Yeah. Okay, well, number five probably won't be much better here, but it's the President of the United States, George Bush. Well, I think we can all agree George is really a human. <laughs> I mean, he, he not only has he been deceptive, but you know he certainly hasn't been in harmony with his environment. I mean, I think his policies on conservation, his policies on, uh, on the ecology, and uh, don't show good balance. Uh, they show a little nearsightedness and selfishness. I think he's much more for the elite and, and not for the group. And um, I'm afraid George is a great example of why we should be reading this book. (laughs) Well, I I certainly hope people will indeed pick up the book again. It's Nearly Human, The Gorilla's Guide to Good Living. Thanks so much. This has been a a real treat, and I'm glad you've taken the time, and I really appreciate the opportunity to share this with everyone. Well, I certainly appreciate your time, and, of course, it was a very fascinating discussion. Thank you again. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.
Rocks, and this week we have the surfer dude telling us a little bit about amino acids. I guess there's tons and tons of different amino acids out there. Well, dude, like there's like tons of them all floating around the ocean, dude. And it's like, wow, there's like you got the glycine, you got your alanine, you got your phenylalanine, you got all kinds of cool stuff, dude. And they swim with the uh, dolphins, right? Oh man, it's like right next to the plankton. We all going together. It's primordial soup, brother. Whoa. So uh, I hear this phenylalanine mm-hmm. one. It's kind of funny, huh? <laughs> well, that one's like kind of wicked, man, because I'm like surfing up on the wave and I see that phenylalanine come by. I'm like, whoa, gotta get out of the way, phenylalanine, because you know what? I'm phenylketone uric, and that can be a problem. <laughs> I swallow some of that water with that phenylalanine. Man, I'm out for the count, brother. Because <laughs> you see, phenylketone urics can be digesting that phenylalanine. Well, especially when we're young, dude. But you know, I'm still kind of young at heart. <laughs> oh, dude. <laughs> Anyway, so I guess you won't win anything. Huh? I'm not winning nothing, brother, because I'm not drinking that fella. You can't make me. <laughs> and that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.